You're listening to the Today's Conveyancer podcast, the leading source of information for residential property lawyers in England and Wales. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todaysconveyancer.co.uk. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Hello and welcome along to the latest Today's Conveyancer podcast. Today I'm delighted to welcome Paul Addison to the podcast. Paul is the MD and founder of DevAssist and uh, Paul you'll explain a bit more about DevAssist to the uninitiated but uh, the discussion today is about your experience as a a land buyer. You've got this mantra about never being able to buy a view uh, and I know DevAssist obviously plays a huge part in in helping consumers and, and conveyances with that part of the buying process. Thank you very much indeed for joining the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. My first question is always a little bit of an introduction. I've given a bit of an introduction about yourself, Paul, but tell us tell us about you, your role, uh, and tell us about where the idea for Devasis came from. I started off life in in property. I was very very fortunate to get a job with Crest Homes back in the early nineties. I think it was. It was probably about nineteen ninety as a uh, a trainee land buyer doing their sort of apprenticeship scheme. Land and development was something I was always interested in. So I was just thrilled to get that job. It was it was my dream. Um, and, and they offered a fantastic training schemes, one of the, the best there was really in the industry at that time. So that was my job. I was my job was to go out there and identify where development opportunities could take place, acquire them, prospect, write to people, knock on doors um, and then take it through the planning system. And it was when I took them through the planning system, I realized how hard a developer's life is because there is this this huge hostility and rejection of change from the British public. It's like nowhere else in Europe. The British public really do hate development and especially when it's on their doorstep. So Devasist was formed really from my experience of 25, 30 years of hostility against me um literally and you know major hostility spat at sworn at hate campaigns um there is a lady that works for uh Lendlease and and you know, she even had death threats so the level of hatred was really in my mind and and the the disappointment that you could spend a year promoting a site for planning only to see it refused by the local committee and then in the appeal process etc so devasist was formed literally from the stereotype three o'clock in the morning eyes wide open epiphany where i realized that i had the skill base where i could educate people about a location Um, i can just apply those skills of being able to spot development opportunities knowing where to research with councils for certain documents that would again give us uh, an insight into what's happening in a location and then to put that together in a nice easy to read report that may would make mr and mrs average able to view a location in the same way that a developer does uh, and, and that's what we do and here we are 10 years on you know we've got a massive following of, of lawyers all over the country that, that use us you described some of the hostility that you faced i mean public enemy number one comes to mind 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I used to purposely turn up to planning meetings in, you know, drabby clothes, torn jeans, etc. I'd never go in the suit because as soon as you go in the suit, they know who you are. You, you might have recently seen, I'm, I'm a big fan of watching Clarkson's Farm. And when he had to sit up there in this public meeting with so much hostility in the room towards him and you could see how drained he was. That's everything I had to live with daily. And it, it, it really is draining. I do know of a guy, a lovely gentleman who tried to do the same as Clarkson and, and, and embrace his local community. He had a massive uh, mushroom farm, huge mushroom farm, and he was looking to propose a major, major settlement upon it. It's now built. This this was some time ago, but he was under so much pressure at that public meeting. He had a heart attack and died. So the level of pressure that is on you by promoting these sites. But the bitter pill for the public is we still need housing. We are still not building enough housing. We are building less than we were post-war. And every party, no matter what colour, whether they're yellow, red or blue, they're all going to be pushing for more housing. You've taken the next question right out of my mouth, which is that we, we simply don't build enough houses in the UK. No, no. We are so, so slow. Each government have made mistakes. John Prescott, uh, and I, I do say this through gritted teeth, actually, because I was never a big fan of him. But when he actually became uh, Secretary of State and he introduced a new national planning policy guidance, it really shifted the industry and it forced good use of land. It was a very simple philosophy. It was like, if, you, if we're going to develop here, let at least make sure we maximise it and we get as many houses on it as possible. Um, but of course, with comes that is all, all the objection from the locals who are going to say, oh, that's way too many car traffic movements. Think of little Johnny trying to get to school and all oh, the schools don't have the space, etc. We had uh, David Cameron and he made a massive shift. He introduced the National Planning Policy Framework. And I have never in my whole career seen such a power shift away from local authorities and back into the hands of the developers. Uh, putting it very simply, what it created was an automatic presumption in favour of development. That sounds quite logical, but what we start, what we used to have was a system where you'd go to the council and they automatically said no. You can't have this over my dead body, etc. What they're now told is that they've got to positively engage with developers and through the application audit, if, if you like, see if there is a justifiable reason why it shouldn't be refused. If they can't find it, then the presumption is in favour. And this is why we are now seeing more greenfield development than, than I've ever seen in my career. Um, and personally, I'm against that because I've always been very much an urban developer uh, in my past. I would go and create developments uh, where, you know, by assembling properties. One of my favourite sites was in Carshalton, where there used to be an old medical research centre. It, it was a disgusting looking building built in the 60s. Um, they did lots of sort of horrible work and testing on animals, etc. And it was a real blot on the landscape. It looked ugly. And we dropped it and we built 36, you know, beautiful, lovely, quite elitist, I admit, but they were 36 beautiful luxury homes. And I'm still very proud of that one because it was, you know, taking something horrid away and bringing it back. But, yeah, that's that's something I would like to see more happen, more use of the urban area and less pressure on the countryside. Talking about that presumption to approve, mm -hmm. that's exactly what 
you tap into, isn't it? You look at a property and you look at the surrounding area and yes. you are looking for what opportunities there are. We might assume that a planning report is going to identify that Tesco's would put their application in for, yeah. for their latest supermarket, but you actually go into a higher level of detail. You, you've really hit on our, you know, the key feature of what we do. Uh, the analogy I always give is if you go to the doctors, you don't want your doctor just to take your temperature and say, right, I've taken your temperature, that's okay, on your way. What you want is the doctor to look, take your temperature, look into your eyes, look into your mouth, your ears, take your heart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we do. Planning data is vital because it tells you the motivation that exists in a location. And it shows you what applicants desire to get approved upon their land. But it's only as good as the activity of an applicant. If someone has never submitted a planning application, it won't be revealed in the planning data. And that's what we do is we then go into that council's sort of uh, effectively their, their virtual back room. And we will look at emerging policies. We'll look at the national policies. And we look at, which is a, it's a key document that very, very few people know it exists. It's called a Strategic Housing Land Availability assessment. There are variations of it, such as a strategic housing and economic land assessment. Very simply, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it starts from an invitation, a call for sites, and that's where a council will go out and invite major landowners, employers, farmers, estate agents, surveyors, solicitors, anybody on their database to throw their hat in the ring and say, I've got some land and I'm happy to see it developed. It then goes through this assessment process and what comes out the other end is land that the council has identified as suitable and deliverable for housing. But there's been no consultation on these sites. They won't be revealed in planning data because there's never been a planning application. And yet here we are with evidence that this land has a motivated landowner and a council that has, to all intents and purposes, approved the, the, the spirit of development upon it. Obviously, there's lots more work that would need to be done, such as ecology and design and highway reports, etc. So it, it doesn't follow that all of these sites will be approved. But it's a critical, critical document to investigate. And we, that's what we do. You know, we look at these documents and we will reveal really surprising sites that people are not expecting. You know, the, the, we, we've had numerous cases of I was going to call them public open spaces, but I'm going to go a step further and actually call them recreation grounds. You know, we are talking fully equipped play areas and they've been identified as suitable for development. And yet people living directly opposite still don't know that that site has been proposed for development. I've seen you present, Paul, we were chatting before we started recording that you used to do a number of CPD sessions. Mm -hmm. And one of my favourite presentations I, I saw you do was uh, around ransom strips. Yes. And of course, everybody loves a ransom strip, don't they? And I remember going away from the talk and actually going and looking around in my local village mm. and just seeing where there were potential ransom strips to explore. They are. You know, it's a daily part of the language in developer world because they are incredibly valuable and small pieces of land. And, and again, the British public just doesn't see it. What the, what the British public will see is a cul-de-sac and they'll see a lovely place and they think, oh, a house at the end of that cul-de-sac, what a lovely place to live. But they haven't looked beyond the end of that cul-de-sac as to where that access point could then grow and, and create a phase two of development. And developers love them because once you own them, that's it. You're in control of that site. They're incredibly valuable. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of exploiting them many times in my career. Typically then, what 
do your reports uncover? Have you got statistics around how often you identify an opportunity? Yes, we have. And it's something we've started to run every single year. Beginning of January, Georgia will go through the thousands and thousands and thousands of reports that we did over the previous 12 months so that we've got uh, a, a yearly stat that we can hit people with. And it has consistently ranged from 29 to 32 percent. Now, that's meaning that's only the high risk sites. Probably 80 to 90 percent of our reports will reveal some form of development risk, but it could be a negligible risk or it could be a very low risk, a theoretical site that somebody needs to be aware could be promoted, but is unlikely to for various reasons. So we're only talking about the high risk sites that they these are the guaranteed development sites that are coming in the next few years. 32 percent of our reports will find one or more of those within 75 metres of the proposed purchase property. So it's a staggeringly high, high hit rate. I don't think there is a report or search that is so revealing uh, in terms of risk. You know, if we looked at Enviro reports, you know, critical document to, to, to purchase before purchase, but it's rare that it would become a deal killer, whereas we will genuinely uncover something that can make a purchaser sober up, hit the brakes and go, in light of what we now know, do we still want to go ahead with this purchase? I'm going to come on to CPRs in a second because there's a big driver towards upfront information. You've got the uh, National Trading Standards and Estate Agents and Lettings team talking about parts A, B and C. But let me ask you first about the word risk because you use it in quite a negative connotation but actually the reports also identify opportunity ultimately don't they for example for a probate property absolutely yeah what we do is we we don't only uh look outside the boundaries of a property we'd also look inside so it may well be that mr and mrs average are unknowingly buying a property that actually has huge development potential um and if it's your main residence, the first half hectare is still tax free. So it, it can be a, a massive wealth creator for people to then see that actually, if I did take this through the planning system or opt to have a developer do that for me, um, we could become millionaires. And, and I, you know, over my career, I have made many, many millionaires, um, literally by sending them a letter and saying, can I come and have a chat about the development potential that exists with, with your land? One of the first deals I ever did, and, and this was on probate, and as you rightly point out, we do have a product that, that deals with probate. The purpose of that product is to protect the executors from underselling a property. And to put this into a real life example, once I broke away from corporate life and set up on my own, the first deal that I took over the line and got planning for was in East Molsey. Um, it was for seven luxury townhouses, but it started with one existing quite tired detached house. It had a very famous painter that used to live there and do all of his artwork. And it went through probate and it was sold for 750000 By the time I got involved on it, I offered him $1.25 million for it. Within a year, of, of buying the property at 750. It was the early stages of my business and I actually then decided not to build it, but to actually sell it on with the benefit of planning and sold it for 1.75 million. 
So in the spate of two years from that property being sold at 750, the actual land value of that property was 1.75 million. Now, the people who have lost out are the beneficiaries of that will, potentially the executors. Uh, and then, they, of course, you've got the risk that sits with those executors, because if HMRC did come knocking, they have undersold that property. Risk is it is a very subjective word. All we're pointing out is there is a development risk and it's highly likely that it's going to be developed in the next three years. We never say don't buy this property. It is up to the buyer to make an informed decision based upon the information that we provided them. So let me come back to consumer protection regs then. And this is at a time when conveyancing is becoming increasingly complex. We've got parts A here and parts B and C coming. How much does the work that you do, do you think, play a part in in helping home buyers to make an informed decision? I think it, it, it's it's critical. Um, you know, we've got lots of clients all over the country who will buy our report. It is the first report they will buy. Sometimes they buy them ahead of the sort of more traditional searches pack. Um, because we may reveal something that warrants renegotiation of the price or it's an absolute deal killer. So we are we are there to protect that buyer. By protecting the buyer, we're protecting the solicitor. And by protecting the solicitor, we can protect the lender uh, because we will also reveal lending risks where we think it should be going back to the valuer and the valuer should have the last word. It should be the valuer's PI that's on the line, not the solicitor's PI. So we, we do cover that as well. I've got a, a client in London and he, he absolutely nailed it. And he, he said, I don't practice law anymore. I practice risk. And that, and that is exactly it. And that was how I was trained. When you buy land, it's all about risk elimination. Um, it's identifying problems, solving problems. And if you can't solve them, it's it's reporting upon them. So the, the, the big management that, that used to you know exist above me in, in corporate world, I was then able to present to them, these are the risks that you now need to make an informed decision upon as to whether we go ahead with this site purchase or not. I mean, there have been plenty of examples of people who've successfully claimed against the solicitor for That's having right. purchased a property. One of the famous ones I remember was a wind farm had gone up about a quarter of a mile away, something like that, that, that blighted the landscape. I mean, you, you can't buy a view, though, can you? And you can never guarantee it. There are some protected or restricted views. Um, there is a, a protected view in Richmond Park and there are protected views towards St. Paul's Cathedral, but it doesn't stop development. It just means that development is limited. So, for instance, with St. Paul's Cathedral, development is limited to uh, the, the amount of stories that you can build to, but you can still build. Um, what you can't build is a new shard or a new gherkin that could block that view, but you can still build up to that level and it may be still seven stories. So, but yeah, there is no view that you cannot be protected from it. And, and that is the most common disappointment that we reveal to property buyers is that lovely view that you fell in love with when you spent three minutes viewing that property is not safe. It is going to disappear and it is likely to disappear within the next five years. You talked about central London there and, and St Paul's. Is there an area that you're particularly sort of focused on when it comes to your business? Um, no, because we are continually surprising ourselves by what we find. Areas, you know, that people always naturally assume when they hear the words Greenbelt, Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, National Park, the assumption of Mr and Mrs Average is, oh, development won't be allowed in those locations. But that is not true. Development is allowed in those locations. It's just further controlled. 
to give you an example, it was one of my favourite case studies, and it was only a, a year or so ago we we found it. It was in Folkestone, which is, you know, a, it's not a wealthy area. So it's not an area that will have developers knocking on the doors down there trying to build large developments because there just isn't enough wealth there for them to take the risk of trying to sell 200, 300, 400 homes. But we did a report on a very modest flat. Um, it was a conversion flat, um, grade two listed, classic sort of Victorian seafront uh, villa, I, I would call it. Um, but it had been converted into flats. What this property had was two views, front and back. It had a view to the back over a car park uh, and a view to the front uh, over the beach, straight directly over the beach with sea views. So it was literally flat, road, beach. Um, what could possibly go wrong there? Well, we went into the planning data and that revealed that the first half of the beach was going, actually had planning, uh, uh, an unimplemented planning consent for a thousand flats. Um, wow. There was going to be no more sea view, a thousand flats to be built, but it had never been implemented, probably because developers don't want to invest in a thousand flats in Foxton. But there is this live planning consent sitting there waiting to be implemented and I, I i was so shocked by what we found i actually went to the location to double check was there a visible clue that mr and mrs average who fell in love with that flat and those wonderful sea views could have seen that would have told them and pre-warned them and there was nothing on the ground i thought there would be a site acquired by or, or land for sale for development or even just a planning notice on a lamppost there was no visible clue that that beach was going to be developed and, and that view was going to be removed and and i could go on all day about water views where people are you know thinking that they've got a safe view over a, a river a canal a lock and we've come along and found that there is actually planning there and and in those cases coming back to the risk point with the solicitor that's when people will get very emotional post-purchase and start looking to the solicitor to say why didn't you tell me about this and really you know that's where our protection comes in it's it's our pi that that's uh, got its neck on the block not not the solicitors wasn't there something in the planning reforms about local communities having more control over where development can happen which would make issues like you the one you've just identified these thousand flats be less less high risk there, there was you're absolutely right what Cameron in, in the NPPF created was an opportunity for communities to take control. But what there was also, there was also a carrot and a stick there. The carrot was you can decide where the development is going to take place. The stick was if you don't decide where it's going to take place, I will. All local councils were forced to work out their housing needs supply. Um, so basically there was a housing needs survey that would say we need to build this many homes in the next five years and the next 10 years and the next 15 years. So there, that what that created was a, was a target. It was a minimum, it wasn't a maximum. So let's say there was an atypical council and it had a target of 5,000 homes. What they would do because they have to hit this five years. If they don't have a auditable, defendable supply of housing, there is an automatic presumption in favour of development. 
basically benefit will outweigh harm. So if a council only had a three, three and a half year supply, I could come along, identify a field. It could be Greenbelt. It could be an AONB. I could propose 200 houses on it and the council would be obliged to approve it because benefit outweighs harm. So what the councils were forced to do was to create this call for sites because the only way they could hit their supply was by inviting landowners to throw their hat in the ring to see if their land was could be developed. So they would look at all of their unbuilt planning permissions, their allocated sites, and then there would be the call for sites which would identify further areas for development. Now communities could get involved at that stage and they could decide where they've got to go and there are many active parish councils across the country that have done exactly that but they've still had to, the bitter pill is, they weren't able to say no to development, they just had the choice to go do we put it there, there or over there. And that's been quite sickening for some councils who, you know, local, especially local parish councils whose single job is to stop development. I said that I'd heard you speak previously, Paul, and every time I do, I always learn something new. It's been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. I, I hope you haven't scared our listeners too much. I hope not. You know, we are here to reveal risks. We are not there to do, kill the deal. That is very much up, up to the clients. But um, if any of your listeners do want to understand a bit more, we do have a training session. Uh, we can run it at half an hour or it can run at an hour. Um, but it's, uh, it's a good introduction for lawyers to understand what's happening with planning policy, what's happening perhaps in their local communities and what's available to, to their, their clients in, in terms of eliminating further risk. So if people are interested in a training session for their uh, conveyancing departments, I can be contacted on paul at devasys.co.uk. But thank you, David. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, chat with you today. Well, thanks very much indeed, Paul. The Today's Conveyancer podcast is available on your preferred podcast provider. It's also available on todaysconveyancer.co.uk. Thank you to Paul. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again soon. You're listening to the Today's Conveyancer podcast, the leading source of information for residential property lawyers in England and Wales. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todaysconveyancer.co.uk. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.